Well, open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This will be our last journey into Romans chapter 5. As we're really looking at what we've been calling the clockworks of the Christian life. Beginning in Romans 5, moving through Romans chapter 8. This is the heart of the epistle. This is the practical section. This is the so what. This is the application We just finished moving through Romans chapter 5 verse by verse and as we've done every uh, chapter so far, after we finish a chapter, we stop and pause and cover the whole chapter at one, uh, in one sermon, just a theological review. So today we're going to be looking at a theological review of Romans chapter 5 and understanding uh, what it means from a high altitude. We've looked at the, at the trees, now we're going to look at the forest. I have to confess that Romans has been something that I've been wanting to study my whole life, wanting to preach my whole life, and I've always been very intimidated by it, scared to death of it. Uh, it just seems like every, every, um, every verse is a house. It invites you into the living room, and then there's rooms and basements and attics and balconies and gardens and terraces. Every single verse takes you into uh, really an exposition of all of God's Word. Harry Ironside has a, a commentary on the book of Romans, and he simply calls it this, an exposition of the whole of Scripture through the lens of Romans. And I understand that, because every word, every concept... Is like Pandora's box. It just opens and opens and opens and opens. That's why it's important as we've uh, determined after every chapter to pause. So if you're, if you're uh, tracking with us, you know what we've been doing. If you're visiting with us, we rarely do a chapter at a time. But we're going to do a whole chapter in review this morning. And that is Romans chapter 5. Look at that first verse. This is really the linchpin of understanding the massive transition that happens in Paul's thinking as he moves from his arguments in Romans chapters 1 through 4 into the rest of the book. He says, verse 1, Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith. That's epic. He just summarized the entire content of four chapters. Justification by faith. He's explained it every possible way. I was talking to someone last summer, or uh, back before Christmas rather, and uh, they were saying, you know, every week we've been coming over the last few weeks, you, your sermons keep sounding exactly the same. And, and I had to say, that's because the verses say exactly the same thing. Paul illustrates, explains, gives a, a story about, illustrates, explains over and over again the doctrine of justification by faith. One of the things we've been doing during the study of Romans is applying that little triad of counsel. It's, I think the best way to counsel yourself, it's the best way to give counsel to others, it's the best way to give a check to your own heart and an insight into your own soul. And that is to ask in good times and in bad, in trials and in triumphs, to stop and ask, what do I feel? What do I think? What's the third? What do I know? What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? And as we've gone over and over, what do I feel? We we rarely feel the right way about a circumstance, especially a trial. That causes us to think often in negative and bad ways about our theology and about the trial and about God's providence. Which makes us doubt what we know and believe. But if we reverse that equation and start with what we believe and know, which influences how we think, 
that will or should or can control how we feel. But it doesn't always change how we feel. We keep saying that. We talk about that. But the question has to be answered. So what do you know? What do I feel? What do I think? What do, I, what do you know? Do you know the right things to cause you to think the right way so that you're not subject to your feelings? What do I know? What do you believe? This will be a recurring theme that Paul's going to answer in the next uh, uh, section of Romans. One of the most important questions in your life is that. What do you know? What do you believe? What are your core theological convictions? We've said over and over, you are defined by your theology. You are a natural and practical theologian all the time. You're acting out, living out your theology by how you respond to life. What you think is controlled by either what you feel or what you know. So Romans is really designed by God through the pen of the Apostle Paul to inform our souls what we need to know, what we should believe, so that we know how to think and we're not subject to our feelings. Romans 5 begins with a very important word. It's the word therefore. Anytime, every time you see the word therefore in the scripture, stop, push pause, uh, ask some serious questions. Therefore is like the equal signs in a, in a calculus problem or in an algebra problem. You're looking at the equal signs. Something, something, something equals and then it follows. When you read the word therefore, that's at the end of a theological formulation. That's the end of a theological argument or um, equation. That's definitely the case as we approach Romans 5. Therefore, and then he tells us what the equation is for four chapters in a simple formulation. Therefore, this is parentheses, this is summary, having been justified by faith. Justification by faith has been what Paul's been talking about. Now, to review Romans 5, we have to first review the first four chapters. Very simple. Romans chapter 1, everyone is condemned before God. Our consciences condemn us. Our actions condemn us. We are natural suppressors of God's truth. We, we push away what God is in our hearts and we bow the knee to idols. Idols made in the likeness of images and creatures and even insects. Idols made in the mirror looking at our own lives. Romans 1 finishes with that famous or infamous assessment of those who give hearty approval of others who do great sins. And all we have to do is look into our own heart. Do we laugh at sin? Are we entertained by sin? Do we grieve over sin? And we can find out if we're falling into that category. But that's basically looking at the whole Gentile world. Paul understands that the Jews who are listening to him speak like this will say, yeah, they deserve it. They don't have the life of God. They don't have the law of God. They don't have the, the, the Torah. The, so that's exactly what they would end up. And then Paul uses chapter 2 to say, not so fast. You who are Jews... Have the law, but having the law means nothing if you haven't applied the law. 
It's not a superstitious kind of thing. I, I told you about my friend who I wrestled with. It was on my wrestling team in high school who before a wrestling match would take a Bible and just rub it all over his arms and legs. And he thought that was going to help him have the power of God. Well, as silly as that sounds, that's what many of these Jews believed. We have possession of God's word. That means that we are superior to all the Gentiles. And Paul says, actually, if you're not living it out, it doesn't matter how many Bibles you have. Then in chapter 3, he groups everyone together and says, lest anyone think that they have a superiority uh, position above someone else, everyone is condemned by God because of our sin. All have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. He makes some pretty sweeping pronouncements. Pronouncements. None who does good, not even one. None understands, none seeks for God, not even one. No fear of God before anyone's eyes. Therefore, God has said that man, by virtue of his nature, is guilty and culpable before God. Now he's been explaining and now he illustrates in chapter 4 the fact that God... Does the most amazing thing. And I, 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 I got to tell you, I am still in this moment overwhelmed by this reality and this fact. It just seems too good to be true. Where God has said, if you will believe that I have offered you salvation in the death of my son and proven it by his resurrection. If you will believe in his life and his death and the meaning, the facts of his life and death, the theological meaning behind his life and death, repenting of your sins then that belief will translate into me giving you what you need most to go to heaven, which is righteousness, justification, same word in the Greek, perfection. I was in Italy uh, with our team last week, and uh, there was a a gal that uh, one of the missionaries and I were... uh, We encountered. She came wanting to get donations for some orphanage, and she spoke very good English. And so... uh, we began to engage her with the gospel. She said, can I give you a presentation for five minutes? And I said, yes, as long as I can give you one for three minutes. She said, deal. So at the end of her presentation, I said, I was getting into the gospel and talking to her about how she could be right with God. And I asked her, what do you think you need to, to, to go to heaven? She said, well, I just got to be better than I am bad. And she actually used the scale. I have to be better then I am bad. If, if I'm just a little better, 51% better than I am, 49% bad, I'll go to heaven. And I said, no, you know what you have to do to go to heaven? You have to be perfect. And you could just see her face like, where did you come from? What planet are you from? And I said, and no, no man has ever been perfect. No woman could ever be perfect. But there was one who by his life and death was perfect And God gives us his perfection, his righteousness, if we believe. If we believe. And that's the whole doctrine of justification by believing, by faith. And it ought to be so fantastical that you should say, huh? And that's why Paul uses all of chapter 4 to say, this is the way Abraham was justified as well. Therefore, chapter 5. So what he does is he breaks down what our benefits are in chapter 5. I want to look at those briefly with you. In chapter 5, it's just a review of so what? What comes as a result? 
And the first thing we notice in verses 1 and 2, as we break this down into some sections, is that Paul covers justification helps us make peace with God. Making peace with God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a one-sentence summary of the first four chapters. Then he goes on with a footnote, through whom, through Jesus, we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Justification then has made immediate and practical consequences in our life. Some felt, some positional, some known, some unknown. I don't always feel righteous before God. Let me just say it this way. I rarely feel righteous before God. But our righteousness and our righteous positional standing is not based on us. Aren't you glad about that? It's based on what Christ has done and who Christ is. Paul tells us here that the holy war that all of us have waged against God from our conscience, from our attitudes, from our actions since birth is over. Through Christ. You know, maybe that's a good place to start in our evangelism. Is to just ask someone, so how is your war with God going? And they should immediately say, what, what, what are you talking about? I'm not at war with God. Actually, yes, we are. We're born as sinners. We've said over and over, you have to teach no child how to sin. I have three sons, lots of lessons in our house. Never was there a lesson. Okay, today, boys, the lesson is going to be how to disobey mom and dad, okay? Let's practice that and then you can try. Okay, try it on your own now. It comes naturally. And as we see in the end of the chapter, that comes, honestly, from mom and dad. So, Paul starts with saying, when you, when you see the results of justification, you understand that it's about making peace with God. And as a believer, we'll celebrate the Lord's table in a minute. Just the simple pause in worship that I am no longer at war with the almighty sovereign of the universe and the creator of my soul. That may be one of the greatest benefits of salvation. Then he moves into another section in verses three to five, and that's finding hope in the midst of suffering. Now, this is strategically positioned. Um, you're in trouble with God, Gentiles, chapter 1. You're in trouble with God, with God, Jews, chapter 2. You're all in trouble with God, chapter 3. You can be saved by faith, chapter 4. And people would see, okay, the, the long war with God is over. And the question becomes, then shouldn't my life get better? Shouldn't life be a, a bed of roses because I'm a believer now? All my sin has been, been taken away by Christ positionally. It's been forgiven, past, present, and future. Isn't life going to get better because I'm a Christian? And the answer is no. In fact, it more than likely will get worse. At the end of chapter 2, he says, we exult, we, we have a pep rally, we emotionally are overcharged about the hope of glory of God. That's heaven. And he says, not only this, and then one of the strangest, most unexpected verses in all of the Bible 
comes out of nowhere in verse 3. Not only do we exalt, not only are we happy about going to heaven, not only are we ecstatic about that great day, he says we take that ecstasy, that overwhelming joy, and we exalt in our tribulations. Did, did you hear the, the nails on the chalkboard? Everyone's tracking with Paul. Great, exalting in the hope of glory. We're so excited. And we're excited about trials and tribulations. How can anyone in their right mind be excited about difficulty? How does that work? And then Paul introduces us to one word. And this word, you, you've got to tuck in. You, you've got to pull this in. You have to own this word in the rest of the epistle. We exult in our tribulation. And here's the word. Circle it, highlight it, underline it. I have, I have it circled and highlighted in green in my Bible. Knowing. Knowing. Knowing what? That these tribulations that we're to exult in bring about endurance, perseverance. You'll know by enduring through, through difficulty that it's not the end of the world. And perseverance, that, that proves our character. That we can prove to the Lord and we can prove to the world that it isn't the end of the world. That we can respond in dignity and grace. In obedience. That our character in holiness is perfected. And that proven character, that brings about hope. And look at verse 5, and that hope doesn't do what trials normally do to us, which is what? They disappoint us. Hope doesn't disappoint. All of that is predicated on the word knowing. Remember, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Now, let me just take you on a quick tour. We're going to do this over and over in the coming weeks, but I want you to see this. Go back to chapter 2, verse 2. See if you see a theme here. Paul says, and we, what's the word? Know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We have a theological understanding. We know, verse 4, do not think lightly of the riches. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? Not knowing. See the importance of understanding and knowing? You don't know this? Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Do you know that? Does that factor into your theology? Look at chapter 5 verse 3. We just looked at it. Knowing something. Knowing God's process. What God's doing behind the curtain, above the clouds, in the midst of our trials. Chapter 6. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now he indicts us. You don't know this? Do you not know this? Look at verse 6. Knowing this. Verse 9, knowing that. Verse 16, do you not know Chapter 7, verse 1, do you not 
know. Verse 14, we know. Verse 18, I know. Chapter 8, verse 22. You've got to know what's in chapter 8. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation, we understand what sin is doing on this planet. And I can't wait to get to verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to, who love God and called according to his purpose. It goes on. We could, I won't give you all of these. Chapter 10, verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject, subject themselves to the righteousness of God. He says there's consequences for not knowing theology. Chapter 11, verse 2. Do you not know? 13, 11, 14, 14. I'm just giving you a few. Paul's point is you need to know. And he indicts us by saying, do you not know? So let me ask you, when you're in the midst of a trial, back here in our finding hope in the midst of suffering, when you're in the midst of trials, when I'm in the midst of suffering, and we come to God and we say, God, I feel, I think, this is terrible. What's going on? I need, you need to stop. I need to stop. And before we get into all of our despair, listen to God through the apostle Paul say, do you not know? Do you know that God is doing things you can't even perceive? Realities known to be true by faith can easily evaporate into doubt when the heart of emotion and the heat of emotion is applied. Even though we don't feel like biblical convictions are true, Paul says, do you not know? Knowing this, knowing that, That's why we preach. That's why we teach. That's why we have care groups. That's why we disciple. That's why we open the Bible and see what it says. Because knowing the truth of God changes our understanding of the world around us. It gives divine insight. And Paul is telling the the, the Romans here, you know, justified by faith sounds all great, but life may get worse. And when it does, what do you know about God and his workings that will sustain you through these trials? At the end, back to verse chapter five. At the end of verse five, he says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And that introduces us to this hinge that goes into this next section. Not only finding hope in the midst of suffering. But also understanding the radical love of God. What do you need to understand most in the midst of a trial? You know what I need to understand? That God still loves me and that God still cares. Because Satan's greatest tool is to get us to doubt the love of God, to doubt our salvation, to make us who are really children of God to suffer through a lack of assurance when we shouldn't. Because it debilitates us. It makes us ineffective for him. So he goes to answer what's so great about the gospel in verses 6 through 11. Maybe my favorite section in all the Bible. And as we've said over and over, if you don't like being called names... Don't study Romans. It is not for those who are seeking self-esteem. For while we were still helpless, it means utterly useless. 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So there in one verse, we're helpless and ungodly. But Christ died for those who are ungodly. That is such an indescribably counterintuitive idea. He actually now illustrates how bizarre the way God loves is compared to the way humans love. So he goes to the human. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone may dare even to die. He's saying it's a noble thing to die for someone. People die in war for their friends. People dive on a grenade. People will push someone out of, a, out of a, uh, the way of a moving uh, vehicle. Someone, it is an honorable thing, would die for their friend. Paul says, you understand that kind of love? The kind of love that would die for someone who's beloved? And he pulls us in close and he says, you understand that? God, God doesn't love that way. He doesn't love people who are nice, righteous, kind people like you and I would. In fact, Christ died for the ungodly in verse 6. Look at verse 8. But God, God doesn't love like people love, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were, insert, not righteous, not friends, not lovable, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is that not the greatest thought that can be conceived in a human mind that understands its rightful position before a wrathful God? He he doesn't love like you and I do. And we should be forever grateful for that. Or none of us would be redeemed. None of us would be saved. Much more than verse 9. Having been now justified by his blood, his death... He died in verse 6 for us. Shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him? He saved us in the past. He will save us in the future. For if while we were enemies, look, we're we're helpless, ungodly sinners who are enemies. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more than having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We'll go to heaven with him. Not only this. How can he even say that? How can you say not only this? What do you add to that? Well, he does. We also, here's our word again, exalt, overflow emotively. We're overjoyed in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. He says, we understand the love of God. We understand the radical love of God. And it makes us spiritually giggly, emotive, overwhelmed that we're saved. I'll never forget a guy. <clears throat> was a good friend of mine. He was, we grew up together. He was um, converted. Uh, he had thought he was saved growing up and had been introduced to the, the gospel in a way that went beyond just knowledge. And he realized I was, uh, I was an unsaved believer. I believed the right stuff, but it didn't have any impact in my life. He was radically converted. His name was Greg. I was sitting at the Cracker Barrel with him in Tennessee. <clears throat> He's a big guy, bodybuilder guy, people all around us. And he's saying, Rick, I've, I've been saved. And I said, oh, that's great, Greg. He says, you don't understand. And he's getting louder. He says, I have been saved. And I said, oh, I know that's great, Greg. And he grabs my hand. 
And he says, I have been, I, I'm not going to hell. And he's getting louder and people are looking. And I'm starting to feel embarrassed. And he was exulting. And I said, Greg, you're really excited. I mean, everybody's going to know about that. And he says, I hope everyone knows. <laughs> okay, I'm convicted. The gospel satisfies our greatest need. The gospel demonstrates the greatest love. The gospel extinguishes the greatest threat. The gospel mediates the greatest conflict. The gospel provokes the greatest response. So then, in three verses, Paul next traces the long reign of death. Everyone needs a theology of death. Everyone must face the reality that we have to have an answer to why people die. I told you the first memory I have of that is when my my grandfather died. I was in the first grade. And that gaping absence that I knew would never ever be resolved in this life. that That he wasn't coming back. That it was done, it was permanent, it was, his life was over. Forced me as a six-year-old to begin having a theology of death. Verse 12, thus, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam till Moses. That he's just saying that before God gave the law, before Moses, people still died. They died because they were sinners. You are still a sinner even without the law. That's his point. Of those who not sin in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who's a type of him who is to come. What he's saying there is everyone sins, therefore everyone dies. The fact that everyone dies is proof that everyone sins. And even though we didn't sin like Adam did or like Moses regulated, which means do this, don't do that, clear violation of the prohibition. Even when we don't know that we've sinned, we're still culpable. People who have never read a Bible still die because of their accountability to God through his word. Death has a long reign. People die. Do you understand that? Have you prepared your, your children, your grandchildren for death in general? <clears throat> and I gotta ask, have, am I preparing my family for, for, for my departure? Are you preparing the people around you to understand that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. We don't grieve as those with no, what's the word? Hope. Does that mean that when someone dies, they were jubilant? No, not at all. But it means that we understand that there are realities not associated with the grief that's in this world for which we can cling to. It's the why and now the what that press us to understand death. Paul's so gracious. He's so kind. He gives us what we need to know so that we can think rightly so that when we feel in despair, 
Our theology undergirds us. We can lean on that which we know, even if it doesn't change, and often it will not, how we feel. So what do you know? Do you listen to Paul? Is, are you listening to his, his exposition in, in this great epistle of Romans? And then last week, we took, last study, we took the last section all in one sermon. And I really debated on whether to do it in five or one. The problem is if you do it in five, you say the same thing every week. He makes a point in verses 15 to 22 telling us to gauge the influence of Christ. Gauge the influence means you measure the influence of Christ. Now you say, what do you mean by that? He says, measure the influence of Christ against, contrasted with the influence of Adam. What's the influence of Adam? Sin and death. We all sin because Adam sinned. We spent some time talking about uh, creationism and traducianism and federalism and uh, uh, seminalism. What happens? Why do we sin? There's a big question. So do we sin because of Adam's passing on sin to us physically? That's the seed, seminalism. Or do we sin because it's representative and God kind of imputed that to us as sinners because of Adam's sin? And we determined that the answer to that is, drum roll, letter C, all the above. We know that our genetic code is broken, don't we? There are birth defects, there are miscarriages, there are things that happen because of Sin physically in the world. But there's also more going on here than, the, than just that. It's not just the, the physical dimension. It's a spiritual dimension. And we know that because the analogy is that we can believe in Christ and his death and resurrection. And we get that value by belief. Which is not physical. Just as Adam gave us his sin. Some physical and some not. His point is not to get into all the whys. His point is to get into the solidarity, the representation. Do you not know? Are you not aware that you cannot help being a sinner? That no one can wake up one morning and decide, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this thing called judgment. I, I'm going to be righteous enough and good enough. I'm going to try hard enough. His point is, you're hopeless. We're all hopeless. And as hopeless as we are as sinners because of Adam's sin, that's as hopeful as we can be because of Christ's act on the cross. It's just entirely, overwhelmingly gracious. And then the whole thing climaxes in talking about imputation, And reconciliation meaning two things. That God in Christ, in forgiving us, took care of everything we owed Christ. Everything we owed God because of our our sin. It was a debt we could not pay. It it was was too much. A hundred billion dollars we owed God because of our sin. We could never repay it. He forgave that. But that's not all he did. He then put... A hundred trillion, billion, zillion dollars in our account called Christ's righteousness. 
The negation of our sin, the addition of Christ's righteousness. Actually goes bigger than that. Second Corinthians says, the righteousness of God in Christ is imputed to us. That's a lot of righteousness. Jesus provides a better contribution, grace, in verse 15. He provides a better gift, justification, in verse 16. He provides a better principle, that's life instead of death, in verse 17. He provides a better nature, that's righteousness, instead of sinfulness, in verses 18 and 19. And Jesus provides a better eternity, that's eternal life with him, rather than wrath in hell, in verses 20 to 21. Paul has now, for five chapters, said salvation is absolutely free. You are not good enough to earn it. We are not righteous enough to merit it. It's absolutely free. All you have to do is believe. No matter how much you've sinned, he will forgive you through belief, through simple faith. Now, that ought to sound too good to be true. It is too good to be true. Only God makes it true. He loves differently than we do. It is absolutely truth. Which would lead you possibly to conclude, verse 20, that grace abounded all the more, no matter how much sin we had, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you could just take a bath in grace and say, we are forgiven of everything. I am forgiven of so much. I am actually so forgiven that I can do anything I want. In fact, the more I sin, the more grace God gives, the more grace is honored. What a great thing this is. I get salvation and grace and I get to live like I want. And Paul understood that preaching grace that strongly would cause that conclusion and so preview chapter 6. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And you can hear the seatbelt buckle in between verses 1 and 2. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still Live in it. And that's the theme of the next chapter, chapter 6.